Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africans mark fifth anniversary of Nelson Mandela's death, UN seeks billions of dollars to tackle humanitarian crisis and BRICS political parties dialogue gets underway in Pretoria. In economics news, Qatar pulls out of OPEC to focus on gas production and in sports news, Kenyan marathon runner wins top IAAF award. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The United States has announced it has re-established a permanent diplomatic presence in Somalia for the first time in nearly 30 years. Ambassador Donald Yamamoto has already established himself at the embassy in Mogadishu. The BBC's David Bamford reports. In 1991, Somalia collapsed into civil war, prompting a mass evacuation of foreign diplomats. The U.S. Embassy was closed down. Soon after, in a military operation against jihadist insurgents, two U.S. helicopters were shot down in Mogadishu and 18 soldiers were killed. It became the subject of a Hollywood film, Black Hawk Down. Since that time, and even though al-Shabaab and Islamic State are active in the country, a modicum of normality has returned to the capital. To reflect this, the U.S. once again has an ambassador in Somalia. The International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, says more than 4,000 people still remain in 13 detention centers in South Sudan, despite the Juba government and rebels promising to release them. ICRC representative in South Sudan, Francois Stam, says the detainees and the prisoners of war are held by the Juba government and fighters loyal to rebel leader Riek Machar. Both sides detain such prisoners and both sides, through this agreement, have committed to releasing them and to releasing them through the offices of the ICRC. And we have been actively engaging with the parties, submitting them lists of detainees that we have visited in the past. And since the peace agreement has been signed, we have facilitated a number of releases from both sides. This is a process that is still ongoing. It is not finished. We are still in contact with all the parties. The Nigerian army says eight soldiers have been confirmed dead in a Boko Haram attack on a military base over the weekend in the country's restive northeast. Gunmen from the self-styled Islamic State West Africa province ISWAP faction of Boko Haram attacked the base in Buni Gari village in Yobe State on Saturday. Military sources initially said two soldiers and six insurgents were killed. Since July, AFP has reported at least 19 attacks on military bases and positions in Bono 
Kano and Yobe. ISWAP had claimed responsibility for most of them. The Nigerian military has hit out at media reporting of the attacks and even threatened legal action against organizations for publishing unofficial casualty figures. The U.S. Consul General to South Africa, Virginia Blazer, has indicated that South Africa's Eastern Cape province is losing the battle in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Blazer visited the Mbilweni Health Facility in East London, along with health head Helen Sols August. This was part of an HIV-AIDS awareness program organized by the Premier's office. The United States has announced it will be increasing funding for HIV-AIDS awareness in the province. Blazer has urged young people to come forward with practical ways to fight the scourge. So 70 people a day contract HIV in the Eastern Cape alone. That's 30,000 people a year right here in the Eastern Cape. Um, so, so we've got to figure out how to stop these infections and we've got to figure out how to get people on treatment and keep them on treatment. And finally, advocate Shamila Patoi will take over as head of South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority, NPA, from February next year. She was announced as National Director of Public Prosecution by President Cyril Ramaphosa at the Union Buildings in Pretoria on Tuesday. Patoi becomes the first woman to be the head of the NPA since its inception in 1996 in the Mandela administration. Ramaphosa had this to say when announcing the new chief of the NPA. The NDPP must ensure that the National Prosecuting Authority exercises its functions without fear, favor, or prejudice and should not be beholden to any vested interests. The NDPP needs to be able to take decisions independently as well as impartially. I have decided in terms of Section 179 of the Constitution to appoint advocate Shamila Batohi. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Channel Africa, celebrating a hundred years of Nelson Mandela. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm, patient determination to reclaim this country as your own. From the rooftops, free at last. Channel Africa, celebrating a hundred years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. It's been five years since former South Africa's President Nelson Mandela died and was buried at his Unu home in the country's Eastern Cape province. The whole world watched as thousands paid their respects to the former statesman who sacrificed his 27 years of life in prison so that South Africa was a free country. Villagers in the surrounding areas say if he was still alive, socioeconomic conditions in the rural areas would have been better. Ngulele Gonyembezi reports. 
Nelson Mandela's burial at Kuno attracted heads of state, world-renowned business people, high-profile politicians and ordinary people from around the world. Many expected his birthplace of Mvezo, his home village of Kuno, and Mkregezweni where he grew up to have economic development, but the villagers are disappointed at the level of poverty. Shivza Nomtetum Tichacha of Mkregezweni village, where Nelson Mandela spent 10 years as a teenager, says Madiba had love for everyone irrespective of nationality and class. The wishes that Nelson Mandela had were definitely not only of his family, not only of us Mkregezweni uh, community, because we are the people that made him, uh, but uh, his uh, wishes would uh, have extended uh, to the wider community, South Africa and the world in general. He adds that Mandela wanted clean and quality leadership. He always has been insisting on good quality leadership. He always has been insisting on leaders that stick up to their promises. He always has been constantly reminding of having leaders that are sober and uh, that can still do whatever it is that is necessary for them to do for the benefit of every humankind. Chief Nogwanele Palizulu of Kono Village says the community will always miss Nelson Mandela because his heart was so close to the local people. Grandfather was not only focusing on building South Africa but the whole world. Mandela was welcoming to the whites, blacks, poor and the rich. Bill Clinton came here and he had a chat with me. He planted trees here in my garden and he never undermined my capacity as a traditional leader. In other words, I mean that Mandela wanted to expose me to the important people. The chief says Mandela believed in the current president, Sir Ramaphosa, and it was his wish to see him at the helm of the country. I really feel pity for the incumbent president, Ramaphosa, because he came at a very challenging time. He was most loved by the grandfather. He mentioned his name almost every time. He just wished him good luck. We just wish him good luck so that one day he can come here at Tono and honor Mandela by giving the young people and women a big program in the area of if Dada Mandela was still alive things wouldn't have been like they are today we are suffering we sleep here along the road because we've decided to do this metal recycling business we have no other alternative because we have to feed our children and take them to school a number of villagers believe that had Mandela's grave been open to the public for viewing, that might contribute to the local economy at Kuno and surrounding areas. I'm Kulule Konyembezi in Kuno, Eastern Cape. Let's go back in time to today in 2013. Nelson Mandela, the first president of South Africa to be elected in a fully representative democratic election, as well as the country's first black head of state, died at the age of 95 after suffering from a prolonged respiratory infection. Today in history, 2013. Extremely high levels of humanitarian need driven mainly by armed conflicts are generating enormous suffering and displacement that will continue in 2019. That was the word from the UN humanitarian chief Mark Lowcock, who spoke at the launch of the Global Humanitarian Overview for 2019 in Geneva. Show and Bar's Peace reports. 
The overview is a report focused on humanitarian data and finds that humanitarian crises have been increasing in number and duration. Between 2005 and 2017, the number of crises receiving an internationally-led response almost doubled from 16 to 30. One of the big takeaways for me from this year's um, analysis is... Mark Lowcock is the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and the UN's Emergency Relief Coordinator. We need to make it a bigger priority in 2019 to address the underlying causes of crises, insecurity, conflict, poverty, development failures, inadequate adaptation and resilience to climate change and other, uh, other disasters. Humanitarian needs will remain extremely high. Something like 132 million people in 42 countries around the world will need humanitarian assistance and protection. Most of those needs occur in long-lasting crises where there's been limited progress in addressing the root causes. The figures tell a story by themselves. Some 16.2 million people were newly displaced by conflict and violence in 2017 alone. This amounts to 44,000 people being forced from their homes every day. An additional 19 million people were displaced by natural disasters, as Lowcock explains. Something like one person in 70 uh, around the world is caught up in crisis and urgently needs humanitarian help or protection. We have a larger number of people displaced, mostly by conflict, than we have seen in the world before, nearly 70 million. Syria tops the list of countries with people internally displaced by conflict, with 6.8 million, followed by Colombia, the DRC, Sudan and Iraq. But the crisis in Yemen is a growing and grave concern moving into the new year. The country with the biggest problem in 2019 is going to be Yemen. We think that 24 million people in Yemen, that's 75% of the population, will need humanitarian assistance. The UN is planning to meet the needs of 15 million of those people. Our appeal for Yemen is going to be for $4 billion. When you look at all humanitarian agencies, fundraising for 2018 will be at a record level, something we think like um, about 22 billion. And that compares with 21.5 billion in 2017. The global overview finds that in the absence of political solutions to long-standing crises, these trends are likely to continue. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Several United States senators have affirmed the view that there is zero chance that the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi happened without the knowledge of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Senators emerged from a closed-door briefing by CIA Director Gina Haspel Tuesday, fuming at the implications of Mohammed bin Salman's involvement and called for the implementation of domestic legislation known as the Magnitsky Act, which author authorizes the United States government to impose sanctions against human rights offenders, freeze their assets and ban them from entering the country. Sean Barr's Peace reports. Leading senators in the United States now say they are more than certain that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was directly involved in the horrific murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd. Listen to the Republican chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, 
Bob Corker. I have zero question in my mind that the uh, Crown Prince MBS ordered the killing, monitored the killing, uh, knew exactly what was happening, planned it in advance. If he was in front of a jury, he would be convicted in 30 minutes uh, uh, guilty. Um, so uh, the question is, what do we do about that? Um, so far, um, it's unfortunate, but I think they, they feel like this is something that's come and passed because uh, the administration has not spoken to this in a way that uh, has spoken to it in a manner that really uh, gives them immunity. The journalist, who was a U.S. resident and wrote for the Washington Post, was critical of the power wielded by MBS. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who had been an outspoken critic of the Crown Prince since the details of Mr. Khashoggi's death began to emerge, said one had to be willfully blind not to reach the same conclusions about the Prince. MBS, the Crown Prince, is a wrecking ball. I think he's complicit in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi to the highest level possible. I think the behavior before the Khashoggi murder was beyond disturbing, and I cannot see him being a reliable partner to the United States. Saudi Arabia and MBS are two different uh, entities. Uh, if the Saudi government is going to um, be in the hands of this man, uh, for a long time to come, I find it very difficult to be able to do business because I think he's crazy. I think he is dangerous and uh, he has put the relationship at risk. Several senators said they'd want to see the Magnitsky Act implemented as a result, but deep divisions remain in the Senate and with the administration on how to proceed. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey is a Democrat. Only a strong response by the United States will send a clear and unequivocal message that such actions are not acceptable in the world's stage. And I think that's more important than ever. And I hope that Senator Graham and my legislation, which we create a real set of consequences, mandatory global Magnitsky, a series of sanctions beyond those that exist, would be a very strong answer to what has happened. The Trump administration has said there's no hard evidence the Crown Prince was behind the killing and urged senators not to downgrade ties with the kingdom as a result. President Donald Trump has called Saudi Arabia a steadfast partner and earlier said the CIA had nothing definitive on the Prince's involvement. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa has hailed the BRICS formation as an action-oriented institution that has achieved beyond expectations. He was addressing almost 300 delegates at the start of a three-day BRICS political parties dialogue in Pretoria yesterday. 
The delegates comprised representatives of political parties governing the five countries in the BRICS bloc as well as fraternal parties from across the continent. The meeting seeks to address the socio-economic as well as geopolitical challenges facing the BRICS countries. Ndebo Mugoba reports. The three-day meeting of the BRICS political parties dialogue is called to come up with a possible and common approach to deal with common economic and political challenges to strengthen multilateralism. The BRICS formations are opposed to a new wave of protectionism, as shown by U.S. President Donald Trump on his tough trade policies. And President Cyril Ramaphosa used the occasion to urge delegates to help rid the world of conflicts and to oppose nationalism. We must be concerned about and seek actively to reverse the rise of narrow and extreme nationalism, which is taking root in some parts of the world. This we must do because narrow nationalism serves only to undermine the rules-based multilateral system of global governance that holds the world together. What we ought never to forget regarding this is that when extreme nationalism rises, so does that the potential for one country or a small group of countries arrogate to themselves the right to determine the fate of the entire world. And V.S. Chesla Slava did again from the Communist Party of Russia said the rise of BRICS signals the end of the unipolar system of governance. We are eyewitnessing developments of a truly historic nature. The unipolar world is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. New forces emerging in Africa, Asia, Latin America and the Middle East are increasingly challenging the global domination of the old colonial powers which are determined to retain control over the world by economic blackmail, information genocide and military interventions. The BRICS countries represent the majority of the population of our planet and production power of these countries is surpassing that of those countries which have built their prosperity on the plunder of human and mineral resources of the East and South. Fraternal parties from across the continent also wanted to benefit from South Africa as the only African country in the BRICS club. Mukwaita Shanyengana is the Secretary General of Namibia's governing party, SWAPO. As a developed country, we want to start the industrialization of our country. So now if we meet with these people, the India, the Russian and the Brazil, we can be in the position to work together as a team, but of course win-win situation, not to, to be dominated, to get what we can get from them. Special might be to add the value to our product instead of exporting raw material. We have a lot of diamond, copper, uranium. So with uh, discussing with them, we see what we can benefit. Alcide Nguenya from Mozambique's governing party, Frelimo, says the invitation offers them an opportunity to network. For us, this meeting is very, very important because we have here the opportunity to get experience. Also to create the network for cooperation. Our region needs to cooperate each other. We are working today together in many areas, agriculture, mining, industry, and you can see the environment of the trade from South Africa and Mozambique. And we know that we have more opportunity, we can reinforce our cooperation in many, many other areas. ZANU-PF Secretary General Dr. Obed Mpofu, on the other hand, says this will help them to beneficiate their mineral resources for the benefit of their people. Zimbabwe, South Africa have quite a lot of uh, natural resources. And it is uh, important for us to have these natural resources. Because of this, that the region has been very productive. We have a lot of natural resources. 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 We have a lot of natural res
in terms of beneficiation of our uh, resources together with those that are friends to us. We will all benefit from this arrangement. The dialogue continues on Wednesday and it will end on Thursday with closing remarks from ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule. I am Debo Mokobe in Pretoria. The South African Parliament has passed a Constitutional Review Committee report on land expropriation without compensation with more than 200 votes. The ruling ANC, EFF, UDM, NFP, AIC and the African People's Convention supported the report. The report recommends that Section 25 of the Constitution be amended to allow land expropriation without compensation. The country's main opposition party, the DA, together with the Freedom Front Plus, AC, CDP, COPE and IFP were against the report. Mercedes Percent tells us more. When he opened the debate, co-chairperson of the Constitutional Review Committee, Stan Mayila, told MPs that there's no difference between the Freedom Front Plus and Afri Forum. Mayila was presenting the committee's report. He rejected claims that the report was flawed due to the exclusion of written public submissions. With the FF Plus, there is a very thin line that separates this party from Afri Forum. It, must, it might as well be said that in court it was Afri Forum and the FF plus. The litigation in question is mainly about written submissions. Written submissions are mainly made by those who are resourced. But being resourced is not a problem. The problem is whether written submissions make meaningful public participation. The Democratic Alliance's Glennis Breitenbach has described the EFF ANC land expropriation proposal as an election roadshow and a hoax. The Democratic Alliance is opposed to an arbitrary amendment of the Constitution. It is totally unnecessary. The Constitution already allows for land reform and in fact encourages it. This election roadshow for the EFF, paid for by Parliament and supported by the ANC, is nothing more than a cruel hoax. It has allowed thousands of South Africans to believe that they will each receive a plot of land. When he took the stand during the debate, EFF leader Julius Malema told the House that one of the critical observations during nationwide public hearings was to see how white South Africans were united in rejecting expropriation, irrespective of whether they are landless, rich or poor. All of them came in unison and opposed expropriation of land without compensation because the reality is that where white interest and privilege is threatened, they protect one another. If they don't care whether the other one is in the wrong or not, why would people think alike like that if it's not an issue of racism and privilege which seeks to perpetuate landlessness amongst those who were conquered by criminals who came into our country and took our land. African People's Convention leader Temba Godi says efforts to amend Section 25 of the Constitution is an important step in the right direction. For the Africanists, the land question is not just about fairness. It is at the core of the national question, national sovereignty and independence. Thus, the APC will always support any move that contributes to the reversal of the humiliation and deprivation since centuries past. The restoration of the dignity and humanity of the natives is their reconnection with the land. UDM member of the Constitutional Review Committee Mgeti Sifildani took MPs by surprise when he started his debate by singing the famous struggle song with the lyrics Let them leave our land. The UDM supported the committee report. This is how Fildani started. Ma-ba-ye-kum-sa-ba. 
The IFP's Elphus Butelezi rejected the report. This government has failed. It cannot be trusted and it's not doing this process in good faith. People of South Africa, honorable chairperson, must know who is rushing this report and what is in their interest. The answers to this can be found in state capture and VPS looting. The IFP rejects this report. The Freedom Front Plus's chief whip, Gornay Milder, blames the EFF for how Parliament ended up recommending a change to Section 25 of the Constitution. We are in this mess because the EFF tricked the ANC on the 27th of February to support their motion in this House. I warned the ANC chief whips, but they didn't listen. And from that moment on, the EFF had the initiative, and the ANC followed. Even the final recommendation in this report was proposed by the EFF and seconded by the poor ANC. The ACDP leader Kenneth Meshua and Deidre Kata from COPE were also against the report. Any amendment to Section 25 has the potential to threaten food security, agricultural reform, and discourage investments. Individual property rights must be protected. Workers have spoken. Our farming communities have spoken. Business has spoken. And the banking sectors have spoken. But yet, the ANC is hell-bent and brazenly intent to, to continue with a marriage with the EFF. Closing the debate was ANC MP Vincent Smith, who told his opponents that the Constitution is an amendable document. The Constitution is not written in stone. We are saying as the ANC that those that oppose the access of land to our people must be remembered when we go to the elections in 2019, because it is those people that will keep us back from creating a united, a prosperous and a democratic South Africa. And just before voting on the report commenced, the ANC and EFF, joined by the UDM and NFP MPs, burst into song while awaiting the bells to be rung for voting to take place from their allocated seats. The report was approved and a resolution passed. Deputy Speaker Lechesa Tsenodi read the results of the votes. There are no abstentions. There's 91 no's and there's 209 yeses. Um, the report is agreed to. The NCOP leg of debate on the committee report will take place today. Co-chairperson Lewis Nzimande is expected to present the report to seek the final approval of the council. Voting in the NCOP will take place per province. Each delegate representing a province will vote on whether their provinces support or reject the Constitutional Review Committee report. And that report by our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent in Cape Town. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Good morning. In the headlines, the United States announces the re-establishment of a permanent diplomatic presence in Somalia for the first time in nearly 30 years. The International Committee of the Red Cross says more than 4,000 people still remain in 13 detention centers in South Sudan, despite the Juba government and rebels promising to release them. And the Nigerian army says eight soldiers have been confirmed dead in a Boko Haram attack on a military base over the weekend in the country's restive northeast. Details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. Going back in time to today in 1996, U.S. President Bill Clinton names U.N. Ambassador Madeleine Albright as the country's first female Secretary of State. Today in History, 1996. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Sanganisa Institute for Development in Southern Africa has launched a new report on amplifying the voice of women living with disabilities and affected by gender-based violence. The study focuses on risk factors to gender-based violence for women living with disabilities. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by the Program Manager at Sanganisa Institute for Development Southern Africa, Chiedza Chaguta. Chiedza, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, Chiedza, briefly highlight for us the contents of the report. Okay, so the report, um, as you the voice of women with disabilities and affected by gender-based violence. Um, so in, in terms of what, um, what we're trying to do with the report is just try and identify what the risk factors are, the GBV risk factors for women with disabilities. We know that the rate of gender-based violence in South Africa, uh, it's an alarming rate um, currently, um, the highest, one of the highest in the world, in fact, um, and women are most vulnerable. But, um, you know, when you take a closer look at gender-based violence, there's particular women um, that are more vulnerable than, and women with disabilities fall into that category. So what we, what we sought to do is to just try and find out what those risk factors are with the view of trying to make recommendations to organizations, um, government departments whose work um, affects women with disabilities, um, you know, in relation to gender-based violence. Now, what are some of those vulnerabilities? Can you just mention a, a few? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think one, the first thing that the study identified was that um, having a disability on its own predisposed women to the risk of gender-based violence. And, um, you know, so because it necessitated um, special care, um, you know, it affected mobility, and, you know, just um, everyday living. And that said, um, a lot of those women that are relying on their family or caregivers to, to, to look after them also were then um, exposed to violence by their families, unfortunately, and, you know, the people that were entrusted to care for them. So I think those were the two major vulnerabilities. But I think um, as well just the fact that um, services, 
um, as relates to, you know, just healthcare services, sexual reproductive health services. We're not accessible. We're not in close proximity um, to women with disabilities. So they're not able to access services. And that on its own, uh, we identified as a risk factor. And so we find that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of this, even though we have limited um, services available for gender-based violence, they are not accessible for women with disabilities in terms of messaging. Um, you know, we, we, we have posters, we have pamphlets, we have adverts um, in newspapers or on radio, but it's not accessible to everyone. Um, and, you know, that lack of information as well then just presents a risk um, for, for women with disabilities in terms no. of, you know, Tiaza, do you find that disabled women are very often voiceless when it comes to issues of uh, gender-based violence? Um, I would not say voiceless, um, but I would rather say they are made to to, to seem invisible. Um, So, I mean, in in how we address gender-based violence, um, we don't don't bring in... um, you know, we don't bring into account their vulnerability, their specific type of vulnerability. So I would not say they are voiceless because they, there are a lot of women, you know, that, that whose voices are out there, but they're just made to, to be invisible, especially by our support service provision. And it's not only limited to government, but to other civil society organizations who have not perhaps taken, um, you know, this vulnerability into account. Just quickly mention some of the recommendations made in your report. Okay, so there's a number of recommendations in the report. Um, I think for me, um, one of the highlights is that there's a need for um, for interventions or programs that target um, learners with disabilities. So in schools where where um, you know schools that cater for learners disabilities because that's a lot of in in it's in those spaces where a lot of the violence is taking place and you know interventions that also target uh, caregivers and families um, you know in institutions but also in residential spaces you know just to to give the right messaging you know uh, provide information to those people as to where do you go um, you know when 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 you when you when um, a woman with disabilities has been assaulted so you know just providing it's important to 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 see that as an important um, target group but also in terms of messaging they, they we need to have um, message messaging that um, with materials that suited to the needs of of women with disabilities, so we should not just limit ourselves to um, conventional um, social behavior communication, uh, social behavior change communication. But it needs to be in braille, it needs to be you know in 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 ways that you know every woman you know in South Africa is able to access. And a lot of a lot of recommendations. But I think, you know... Um, These are the highlighted ones. Those are the highlights, yes, of, of, of what we are recommending. Cheers, thank you so much for joining us and all the best. Pleasure. That's the program manager at Tlanganisa Institute for Development Southern Africa, Chiedza Chaguta, joining us on the line. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. 
The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character, of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. The Zambian government has urged African countries to work together in the quest to improve the aviation industry on the continent. The call was made yesterday at the opening of the 30th Ordinary African Civil Aviation Commission Plenary Ordinary Session in Livingston. Channel Africa's Hilda Akekelwa was there. More than 200 delegates from 35 countries of Africa and outside are in Livingston for the two-day meeting that will discuss among many subjects the progress made in sustainability of the single African air transport market. In his opening remarks, Transport and Communications Minister Brian Mishimbwe said the potential of civil aviation in Africa has been underexplored and underutilized. In the speech delivered by Minister in the Vice President's office, Honorable Sylvia Chalikosa, the aviation minister said, while Africa is the world's second largest and second most populous, African airlines are undercapitalized, operate narrow route networks and have small and aging aircraft fleets. He said for this state of affairs to change, African states need to come together and implement common strategies to harness the continent's economic potential through aviation. Africa's leadership through AFCA must continue to create enabling and conducive business environments that attract private sector capital investment in aviation. This underscores the urgent need for African states to forge a common approach on civil aviation, mergers of carriers and shared risks among carriers on the continent must be promoted. And African Civil Aviation Commission President Hani Eladawe said the plenary session has been designed to provide delegates the opportunity to discuss sustainable development of air transport, aviation safety and navigation, aviation security and facilitation, as well as human resource optimization. We must acknowledge together that air connectivity is unique and indispensable catalyst for social economic growth and one of the facilities mobility and contributes to the development of trade, tourism and services both within Africa, between it and the world. At the same time, we must also recognize and act upon the fact that the current status of connectivity on this continent is suboptimal, thus hindering the realization of aviation's tremendous benefits. The ordinary plenary session witnessed the signing of memorandum of cooperation between the Civil Aviation Authority of Singapore and the Association of African Aviation Training Organizations. Permanent representative of Singapore to the International Civil Aviation Organization, Mr. T. Chang Hu, said the agreement is a renewal of a relationship that has lasted more than 21 years. He said it has over the years contributed to improved civil aviation skills in Africa. 
21 years ago, we started with a memorandum of understanding on training. And that's when Singapore provided what we call fellowships that allow AFCAP member states to send participants for the courses that are being run in the Singapore Aviation Academy. So this time is a renewal and a renewal in which we are able to increase the fellowships by 20% from 150 to 180 over three years. And in fact, if you uh, look around in this room, many have actually been to the Singapore Aviation Academy and some of them today are key appointment holders in Africa. And we are also benefiting because as we bring diversity into the classroom and we are able to learn so much from our African colleagues, and it is a mutually beneficial relationship. The meeting is also attended by representatives from the European Commission, the Transport Security Agency of the United States, and the General Civil Aviation Authority of the United Arab Emirates. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekerwa. Channel Africa. Kultanjoy Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mujemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Our economics update up next with Tabisolo Hoko. next month in order to focus on gas production. The Gulf State's new energy minister, Saad Al-Kabi, announced this on Monday, denying the surprise move was a result of Doha's bitter feud with oil-rich Saudi Arabia. Qatar has been a member of OPEC since 1991, or rather 1961, and the decision to pull out after more than five decades comes at a turbulent time in Gulf politics with Doha under a boycott by former neighboring allies, including Saudi Arabia, for 18 months. Al-Kabi says that the decision was technical and strategic and had nothing to do with the blockade. Farms and factories have dragged South Africa out of its first recession in almost a decade, as the economy grew by more than expected in the third quarter. The positive data is a booster for President Cyril Ramaphosa, who has a pledge to restart growth after a decade of stagnation under his predecessor Jacob Zuma. Data from Stats South Africa shows that the country's economy expanded 2.2% in the third quarter from the second, snapping out of recession after a revised 0.4% traction in the previous quarter. The Central Bank of Lesotho says the marginal a 4.4% increase in the number of persons employed in the textile sector had a direct impact on the otherwise modesty economic growth in the third quarter in Lesotho.
The Apex Bank's Monetary Policy Committee revealed this after the 74th meeting this week. The committee considers international, regional and domestic economic developments and financial markets conditions to determine appropriate monetary policy action and to maintain price stability. A comprehensive new study from Bloomberg dubbed Climate Scope 2018 states that Zambia and other developing countries' solar investment will significantly contribute to global clean energy. Key findings for Zambia indicate that the country has successfully launched the 100 megawatt solar PV tender request for proposal as part of the JetFit program. Round 2 will involve the 100 megawatt small hydro tender and a pre qualification stage which is expected to be released in this quarter. A research paper from APSA Group, formerly known as Barclays Africa, expects diamond production at both the Botswana's joining and Rapa mines to continue to rise. This comes in the midst of De Beers' continuing efforts to ramp up additional processing capacity in response to stronger trading conditions largely believed to be driven by positive consumer sentiment. Lebuham Mabange reports. The research knows that the Litakane Tailings Resource Treatment Plant, which was constructed to recover diamonds from leftover materials through diamond mining, will have the capacity to produce up to 800,000 carats per year. This is expected to boost overall capacity at Litakane Mine and effectively extend the lifespan of the mine by 20 years. Indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar is trading at 10.28. Botswana Pula. It's at 11.78. Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 3.84. Brazilian roll. At 66.56. Russian ruble. And at 70.37. Indian rupee. 6.84. Chinese yuan. $13.69 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound. 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,235. Platinum. Platinum $794 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $61.10 a barrel. Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, this hour we begin with athletics. Kenya's marathon world record holder Iliod Kipchoge and Colombian jumper Catherine Ibaguin were honored as IAAF Athletes of the Year at Athletics Annual Awards ceremony last night. Olympic champion Kipchoge shattered the world marathon record by 78 seconds as he completed the Berlin Marathon in 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds, while Ibaguin was the Diamond League champion in both the long jump and triple jump. Both are first-time winners of the award. Kipchoge's performance marked the biggest improvement in the marathon record since Australian Derek Clayton took almost two and a half minutes off the mark in 1967. A 34-year-old Kenyan also won the London Marathon this year. The IAAF Male Athlete of the Year 
Eliud Kipchoge. Eba Gwyn, the Olympic champion in the triple jump, was undefeated in eight finals in the event. Her triple jump of 14.96 meters in Rabat was the longest in the world in 2018. A 34-year-old was also IAAF Continental Cup and Central American and Caribbean champion in both the long jump and triple jump. And the winner is Catherine Ibarguen. Cricket news. The Josie Stars picked up a good 50-run win against the Cape Town Blitz in, at Newlands yesterday to move into second place on the Mzansi Super League table. Betting first, the Stars overcame a slow start to the innings to score a healthy 196 for four with inform Risa Hendricks hitting 79 and Rassi van der Dessen getting 42. The Blitz never quite got their ch- chase going and were bowled out for 146 with Jeneman Malan top scoring with 43. Australian Dane Christian took four for 22 for the Stars. Blitz captain Fahan Behadin says credit must go to the Stars, who were the better team on the day in all areas. No, not at all. I think credit must go to the Josie Stars. They, they have informed batters. They won the toss and put a big total on the board. Uh, we bowled really well in the first 10 overs. And, uh, yeah, they played a lot of high-risk, high-reward. You know, uh, they... Their run rate was at about six and a half, seven runs and over, and, and, and they got out to a big total and put us under pressure. Still with cricket news, Hendricks was the man of the match for the third game in a row and was just 21 runs short of his third conservative century, but says he was just focused on his betting and not the 100. Yeah, there's a good vibe in the change room at the moment, which is good. I think the, the boys are chilling nice as a team, so... A couple of wins now. Uh, there's definitely momentum with us, uh, but uh, we're going. We're going playing away on Friday again in Durban, so it's another important game for us. Um, so hopefully we can try and get some points out of that as well. And finally, golf news: Louis Oosthuizen and Charles Schwartzel both at Rand Park for the South African Open, hosted by the city of Johannesburg, beginning on Thursday. War brought smiles at the club during the Tuesday's Pro-Am. They were chuckling and reminiscing because it was right here at the Rand Park where they first met as Nipahs back in 1996 when their respective fathers, Pete Wurzeisen and George Schwarzel, had entered them for the first time in the South African Boys Championship. Louis was 14 and Charles 12. Louis' dad had driven him all the way up from their farm in Albertina in the Southern Cape. Their car broke down during their adventure to the bright lights of Jobek to be at the tournament and ready for his 9 a.m. tea time on day one. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South Africans mark fifth anniversary of Nelson Mandela's death. UN seeks billions of dollars to tackle humanitarian crisis. And BRICS political parties dialogue gets underway in Pretoria. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagaza and Khomuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Sipo Mabuse with a song titled Nelson Mandel. Achieve. Be part of that idea. Oh. 